0: to get started here, we come to really a very interesting, and I think important chapter in 1 Samuel, as well as the Bible, because it deals with some very important subjects, it just kind of stands out of uh, the accounts around it, so I'm always uh, interested in uh, this chapter. Uh just by way of review then, we saw that perhaps the most important thing we dealt with last week was being able to be faith, a faithful servant like Jonathan. Jonathan has offered such a good example to a Christian. Even when things don't seem fair to us, when it turns out that we don't have a marquee role in the kingdom of God. Perhaps we're just happy to be in the kingdom of God, right? to be a servant of the Lord and have a part, because we know that He will make all things worth. In, in eternity, and so all this is true of Jonathan, uh, in, in the sense that he, uh, was of character much greater than his father, and yet he was not king, mm-hmm. and, uh, yet he was a man who was not bitter, but a man who served the Lord well, and, and he, he loved others, and, and was uh, someone who people would follow. So history would look on Jonathan as a loser in a sense. We kind of think of secular history and how the world tends to look at things, since he never got to be a king. But God needs servants, not winners. And so God was busy bringing the Messiah to the world. And so how silly to not be part of it because you should have been king. It wasn't fair that my dad what my dad did to me. You know we make excuses for because uh, things aren't going the way we want them to go, and we forget. You know that what the purpose of life can be, and so outwardly Saul is a successful king militarily, and yet it is Jonathan that seems is seen in a good light, and no doubt enjoys heaven today. And so uh, to me that was just one of the standout things of last week. Uh, let's stand, on, we'll read uh, chapter fifteen. We'll read uh, down a uh, uh, down a little ways, about half of it or so. starting in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did, not, did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them kill both man, woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel and donkey. So Samuel summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart down, go down from among the Malachites as I destroy you with them. They were uh, some who had uh, been with Israel when they came out of Egypt and had evidently settled in that area, so he gives him a chance to leave. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Habilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lamb and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. uh, Gilgal. So here Saul has made a monument for himself in his partial obedience. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, "Blessed be you to the Lord! I have performed the commandment of the Lord." But Samuel said, "What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowering of the oxen that I hear?" The lowing, not lowing, but the lowing of the oxen. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, "Said Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, you are not in the, the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, fighting against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. It's funny they keep saying the Lord your God. But Samuel said, has the Lord his great delight in burning offerings and offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice to listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the Lord the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Getting seated. So just a, a tremendous section of scripture and so much in there. Um, and so from now on we see the, the final rejection of Saul as king and from now on he'll be kind of the foil uh, against David as David rises up to uh, eventually reign but there are some great lessons to learn here uh, as we go through this chapter and I hope we'll get through all of them I don't know that we will but first of all when God says judgment is coming we are without excuse to dis- dismiss his warning with when what God says, any he promises He makes, anything He says is going to happen in the future, uh, as in Exodus seventeen fourteen, when, uh, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amal- Amalek from under heaven, uh, because they, uh, attacked Israel while they were weak, while they were wandering through the wilderness. God says, uh, you, someday I'm going to destroy you. Now, Said, well, why? Well, there were other things going on. We'll talk about it in a moment with Amalek. <clears throat> but when God says it, it's going to happen. So to ever dismiss anything the Bible says as not true or a prophecy that's not going to happen is, is a foolhardy, foolhardy at best. And <clears throat> we've talked about how the world and the skeptics love to point to such passages as this to somehow justify the rejection of God, because well, he's cruel, he's warlike, he's unloving. Look at here what he says, and certainly when we read uh, verses uh, three, verse three in particular, that it, it's it's a difficult verse in one sense, right? Because it, he says slaughter them all. Every man, woman, child, baby, every living thing, basically every animal, kill it all. <clears throat> Christopher Hitchens, uh, in a debate, suggested that there was nothing in the Ten Commandments. I'm just giving an example of how they look at these things. He says there's nothing in the Ten Commandments against ch- killing children. Uh, and so, uh, text such as this proves that if God exists, which... Of course, Christopher Hitchens was a famous atheist. It proves that he's not any better than anybody else because look what he's having them do. Well, of course, those are uh, two different things. Uh, the Ten Commandments, in and of themselves, while they, it doesn't e- express killing children, it does talk about murder and killing in general. And there's certainly enough, even in the Ten Commandments, to show that uh, God is against killing children. You know, we, it's, it's wrong. And, and, of course, just think about the whole abortion problem. uh, You know, that alone is because people reject God's demands. But one of the reasons this nation is completely wiped out is because they offered their children to Mala. They were, uh, that was their go-to God. And it is well known that, Part of the worst feat of him was that he would throw the child into the cradle of Moloch's arms, that where there was a, a, a huge fire going. So they would just throw their babies alive into the fire. And so, of course, Christopher Hitchens and the skeptic don't deal with the fact of the sin of people because they don't believe in sin, and they don't—they and don't, think people are innocent in some general way. And, and they don't even deal with the, 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 the facts and what's really going on here. And that reveals, of course, part of their problem. Is and then the, not to mention the fact that they believe. And this is always this is a first and foremost sin of skeptics. They think they can sit in judgment of God, you know. And of course, you know, the creature cannot sit in judgment of God. And just to deny that there is a God doesn't change anything because all that. Romans one makes it very clear: all you're doing is suppressing what you know to be true to start with. So we need to be careful that we develop our worldviews and theology by listening to what God says and has revealed, and not try to impose our human reasoning and philosophy on God, which, of course, is the great sin, as I said, of the uh, lost. Uh, you know one example that they use is that they assume, and again, this is all just human logic without any basis in the revealed will of God, but they assume that true freedom means you have to be choose to sin or not. If, if you can't choose to do anything and everything that comes into your mind, you can't be free. Well, again, even logically, that doesn't really make any sense. There, there can be no one Freer than God. And yet, God can only do what He is by nature. God is not free to sin because God is not a sinner. God cannot do sin. And so, and yet, so, so you see just the illogical nature of the argument. And the same can be said of Christ, even while He was here on earth. He did not sin. It wasn't because He was not free that He was forced to keep the law. It's just who He was. He could do no differently. And it's not a limitation to not to be able to do that which is contradictory to your nature. It's not a contradiction. So, does this mean that somehow we are being held back from being free? You know, in heaven someday, <clears throat> we will not be able to sin. And does that mean that we then are not going to be free in heaven? No, it means that we are going to have the nature of that which only delights in doing that which uh, pleases the Lord. And so, perhaps our idea is definition of free will, and the supposed absolute necessity to have free will needs to be defined as God defines it in the Bible, and not us to decide what is free will, what is freedom, moral freedom, and so forth. <clears throat> And the same holds true in all these accounts as well. Let's be careful of imposing our sin-ridden ideas of right and wrong upon God instead of defining letting God define what is right and wrong. In other words, it is not the creature's business to look at chapter 15 and make a judgment. This is God. We are to examine what God does and glean from that. At the heart of the above objection... Is that fallen man doesn't like to be told what to do, and so he can't rebel if he sees himself as being forced to do something. You know, they, uh, man, people who say, well, we gotta have free will because God can't judge us if I'm uh, if, if doing only what I've been predestined to do. Well, no, because you're not using biblical arguments, you are drawing conclusions that can't be found in Scripture. But if you think about the fact, if if we live in a universe in which there was no sin, then obeying God is the only sane choice. So it's not like if, if there was no such thing as sin, if we were not able to sin, then we aren't free. No, there, there would be no reason not to do anything other than to do the right thing. And so to say that our Creator doesn't have a right, in this particular case, for instance, to kill His creatures, Is in one sense a the stupidest idea one could possibly have, because you're saying that the Creator who gave me life has no right to take away that life. Well, that's the prerogative of the the Creator to start with, and so it it just shows the rebellion in the heart. So, verse eighteen suggests that this generation of the Amalekites were innocent people, and again, notice what the king says here. Um, He says, go devote to the well, no, okay, there's two different things here. Verse 18, first of all, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, right, of the Amalekites. So the Amalekites were sinners. They weren't innocent people out there in in their uh, pristine condition and, and, you know, God was bringing uh, his word to bear upon them or anything like that. And then also notice verse 33. As they're talking to King, Agag here. Uh, and Samuel said, As your sword has made women childish, childless, so shall your mother be childish among women. So Agag had been killing uh, ch- children himself. So, God had every right to punish them for their sin. And, uh, you know, so, again, to think of them as innocent, to think of anybody as innocent, and that when God it allows them to, because we're all gonna die anyway, and to, uh, allow, to, to let someone die before they die of old age, doesn't change anything. That's the Creator's prerogative. In Isaiah, uh, 35-4, we read, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. God is going to, He is the judge. He will make all things right. And so the full gospel involves, involves both the vengeance of God, and his enemy, upon his enemies, and the salvation of his people. In other words, judgment is the reason the gospel is good news. Because we're all headed to destruction. And so we do know in any favors when we try to ignore or deny all that God is. Even the difficult things. It doesn't mean we have to fully understand it or fully explain it. But we don't have, God doesn't need us to decide what is, the world will find more palatable about God and what they want and so we we can only reveal part of what the Bible says about him in Revelation 6-9 for instance we know that the judgment when he opened up the fifth seal I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne they cried out with a loud voice O sovereign Lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood of those who dwell on the earth. So it's the Lord's sovereign right to uh, do with man as he will. And it kind of gives us a, a mini-scenario of the result of those who hate the Lord and his people. I mean, that, That's where the Amalekites are headed. Whether God kills them a little bit earlier, this is where they're all headed anyway. And so to decry this is to say that no one should die or be sent to hell. And it is horrific, not only what happened to the Malachites, but it's horrific when you think about what hell is, right? The whole concept. But, so is sin against a holy God. And, and that's where, that's where Hitchens and, and the skeptic and the, the lost person stop. All they care about is human suffering. The fact that someone would sin against God, means nothing to them because that's what they do every day anyway. That's what their life is, is to suppress the knowledge of God. So, you kind of understand it, right? In verses 8 and 9, we see here that another thing, in that God defines what lives are to be used for to begin with. He defines what is off limits and what is not. We see here that nothing is ours to do with as we please. We're always under the guideline of the Lord. And we read that in verses uh, 8 and 9. When Saul and the people spared Agag the best of the sheep and the oxen. Excuse me. Well, starting in verse 8. Well, he took Agag and and he kept him alive and didn't kill him. He killed everybody else. And then he sits there, even though he'd been told everything is to be destroyed in this particular case, he and the people said, well, you know what? We have a better idea than God does. These, some of these things are actually beneficial to us, so let's not get rid of that. You know, later he says, well, we were going to offer these things to the Lord, which is a lie, uh, you know, because if the Lord wanted them, he would have told them to keep them alive, right? So, God has defined, and has the right to define our lives and, and the parameters of our life, and therefore it is not uh, up to us, or any, you know, Christian or not, to redefine what those parameters are. And so you see this with, with Saul, and he decides what he will give up or not. And you know, you, this whole idea—it's easy to give up things that. Are harmful or that we don't care about, right? Someone says, well, I don't smoke, uh, it's harmful to my body, well, which is true, and, and you know, they wouldn't, wouldn't criticize that. But in one sense, you're giving up something that's harmful to your body, so what? You know, that, that only makes sense. But here, Saul so is told to give up that which is not harmful, but is pleasing and, and beneficial in some way, right? And in other words, God says that even the good and useful things are mine to give, to take away. They fall under my authority. And so you don't prove anything by giving up bad things. If are you able to give up family relationships, as Jesus says, you know that your you your love for me must make your love for the family look like hatred. Are you willing to give up those relationships if, for the cause of Christ, they will have nothing to do with you? See, now you're. Now that's self-denial. That, that is giving up something for the Lord. That, that, that's something, uh, again. And that's what, you know, sometimes I think of legalism. they always telling us you can't smoke, drink, you know, all these things you can't do. Uh, uh you know, well, okay, but most of those things aren't good for you anyway. There, it's, you know, it, it's all well and good, but are you willing to give up even the good things for the Lord when He tells us to? And as I try to do as we talk about, you know, both here in, in morning service when it comes to defining what sin is, the best way, it's perhaps not the best way to describe the Christian life as what are you giving up, right? That's too often the case. That's sometimes what only people talk about, giving up stuff for the Lord. They are to be used for the best purposes. Everything that we have in life is to be used for the best purposes, not the worst purposes. We aren't giving up good things, but we're using them in the best way. And when we are told to give up something, it's always for a good reason. And we always want to make sure we remind ourselves of that. We don't help ourselves often when we only describe our serving the Lord in negative terms, right? Now, Jesus does. He does both, and it's not You know, he said, deny yourself and follow me. That's a negative term in one sense. But, always, There's there's, there's the good things, the good reasons why we do these things that we want to always remember. Remember, last week, Saul was quick to offer up Jonathan for the flimsiest of reasons. You know, again, think about it. Saul was willing to have his son killed for his stupidity, but he's not willing to kill these animals and this king because there was, you know, of to keep the king alive and to keep him subdued makes him look good. <clears throat> so if we will, I think there's application here for us because you say, well, I would never do what Saul did and sacrifice my child and have him killed, my first well, okay, fine, hope not, but do we not sometimes sacrifice our children's spiritual well-being because we're so busy making a living, uh, we get so busy in, in whatever we're doing in our careers or, or whatever our interests are that we don't have time, we don't take the time, shouldn't say we don't have time, we don't take the time, to raise our children in the Lord, to teach them. Right from wrong, to teach them the gospel and about the Lord, because we're too busy. And I, I, there's countless men in particular, but at a church too, many mothers as well, who felt, I've given my family the good life, I've supported them well. And they have completely ignored their spiritual life, they don't go to church. Uh, maybe their family does, they, they don't go to church, they're too busy, you know, it's my like day off, whatever. And they think they've done their family some service because they, they've given them a good financial life. When they've done, they've been the worst possible father they could be. And if they have ignored Christ and ignored their spiritual well-being. So, let's just remember that these examples here have to be put in our own context. But just because you you know, don't abuse your child physically, for instance, doesn't mean that you don't abuse your child spiritually. So here in verse 9, we see that Saul evidently was more concerned with what the people thought, and their motivation has nothing to do with obeying the Lord. Uh, you know, they just don't want to waste good things, and so they think that partial obedience Saul says, I've obeyed the Lord. I've, I've obeyed all the commandments of the Lord, which is a complete lie. Uh, but, but this is this is again something we have to, and this is the second big point we want to look at today. What is true obedience? It's kind of how I uh you know in, uh, entitled the message, right? When is obedience really not obedience? Right? And Saul has a mis uh understanding what true obedience is? <clears throat> They're willing to give up what they don't want, but not so much the things they can use. Uh, again, notice Samuel says, "You guys pounced on this." You know, it wasn't like you just Well, "Can we make some sacrifices or to the Lord of this?" Which would have been wrong. No, they pounced on that stuff. They, they were. It was greed. It was this is what satisfies the flesh. That it literally means to swoop down. They can't wait to get at it. But the problem is, is that, as we're gonna see here, even if they had sacrificed some of this to the Lord, if you're disobeying God and doing it, you're not really making a sacrifice that pleases the Lord, right? And so, when the Lord says, okay, I'm getting rid of Saul, Samuel here, notice he gets angry, and you know, the commentators deal with this differently. I really don't, I really kinda think that Samuel (laughs) <laughs> to some degrees, angry with the Lord, Which says, "You know, because I knew this was a mistake from the start. I didn't want to uh, uh, anoint him as king, and he made me do it. You know, so all night long he struggled. I think he's struggling with the Lord here. When the Lord, it seems like the Lord has come around, and the text kind of says that a little bit, uh, right? Um, when, when in verse eleven, I regret." And I have made Saul king, and and I think Samuel's saying, well, duh! Uh, You know, in in a respectful way. Now, some commentators say, well, Samuel's angry with Saul because Saul's done wrong and all that, which is certainly probably true, but that, nothing changed here. So he doesn't understand why the Lord, knowing that Saul was going to be a bad king, why, I think the struggle is, why did you make him king to start with? I mean, this was the highlight of Samuel's ministry in a lot of ways, to anoint the king, the first king, to make this transition from the judges to the kings, and now it looks, he's going to maybe look like he's made a bad mistake before the people, because he anointed Samuel, or saw to be king, and, you know, say, well, the Lord told me to, but, you know, I think Samuel's embarrassed, hes he's, he doesn't understand what's going on, and, and you know, I think you know, I think we've all been there, right? So he struggles all night. But notice this. And this is why I believe Samuel has a good heart. He struggles all night with this. And yet, he gets up early in the morning to obey the Lord. And do you remember anybody else who talked about this very thing earlier in the Bible? Remember when God told Abraham, you're going to sacrifice your son tomorrow. which you take him down to the book of no. the mountain. More, More, or and Moriah, or of And it says that Abraham got up early in the morning and started off. There's no, this is the will of the Lord, so I'm going to do it, whether I understand it or not, right? And so Samuel offers us a great example here. <clears throat> I think his anger shows his heart's in the right place. He's upset over God's kingdom. And we could at least ask ourselves, what upsets us? Uh if, if you go into Jeff's Bible study you know we're going through Jonah and Jonah remember Jonah was not upset that Nineveh was a place of sinners under judgment he was upset that God would forgive them but he wasn't really upset with that the whole city be destroyed, he wanted the city to be destroyed but there's a plant growing to give him shade of the the heat of the day, and God kills that plant who's sitting in a worm, remember? And that upset him. And to the point, I wish I was dead. I can't, I can't take the heat. God's killed the plant. That's what upset it, And I think that's exactly why God did it, to expose them. You and, and, you know, so I won't get into all that. We'll get into that when Jeff gets to it. But it's, Jonah is just a fantastic book in so many ways. It's in that last chapter, where it all kind of comes together. So, in verses 15 and 21, we we begin to see Saul's problems here in, in detail. First of all, it says, verse 15, um, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared. So he's blaming the people, right, for all what's going on. He's king. Um, and then uh, verse 21 But the people took the spoil, the sheep, and the oxen. So, again, he's blaming the people. Um, He blames others and assumes that, that some devotion to God is better than no devotion to God. And I think that's really something we've got to key in here when it comes to what is obedience. Some obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And that's what's going on here. You cannot pick and choose do something. It's like you're throwing God a bone. And now, oh, Lord, I've, I've done something for you, so you should be happy. And this is what some people do on Sunday. They throw, they think they're throwing God a crumb. I, I go to church and I endure the preaching for an hour. And so now I'm free to live my life the way I want to live it. And notice here in verse 16, Samuel cuts all that crap off immediately. Stop. I don't want to hear any more. What does he say? He says you need to listen to what God says about this. And so the, the the third thing we see here that that is the difference between what is obedience and what is idolatry. And so he does it by making four things. He poses a question in here in verse twenty two, and then an assertion twenty two b. Then in twenty three, a comparison. And then in 23b, um, a uh, condemnation. And so no passage, I think, in the Bible any better uh, gets to the essence of serving God and the difference between true faith and false religion like this one. Samuel negates the sacrifice, not absolutely, but relatively. In other words, even if they are going to offer some of these things to the Lord. Samuel doesn't say, well, it's not a sacrifice, but he says it's not one that pleases the Lord. It really is a sin. He's saying that formal worship, then, cannot be a substitute for obedience. In other words, we're talking a little bit about this in the men's meeting when it comes to liturgy. And there's a lot of different denominations and churches out there that have... you know, a, a lot of liturgy in their services, and it's not all bad. I mean, you might go to one and there will be, you know, they'll say a prayer at certain times, and uh, they would uh, have the songs maybe at different times, and uh, read the scriptures, you know, and things. It's all you don't have to go wrong with any of that, right? But there are some groups, uh, the, the Orthodox, for instance, the Greek Orthodox, the Orthodox Church, uh, certainly Catholicism, but the Orthodox Church is kind of known for this, The liturgy is the main focus of the church. As we go through these uh, different uh, actions and and say these things, then while we're doing that, the Holy Spirit is is bringing grace upon us. So it's the liturgy. It's not the preaching of the word. It's not faithful doctrine. It's the actions, the formal worship, the liturgy. They make much of that, more so even than Roman Catholicism. And so... But of course, we know what Rome does too and with some of the liturgy that they do. But is not Samuel saying, wait just a minute? Um, formal worship cannot be a substitute for obedience. In worship, when we come together the church, it is to hear what God has to say primarily. Yes, we are to sing and praise the Lord. We are testified of the Lord's goodness, as we're going to do this afternoon. That's all part of why we come together. But it primarily is to hear what God has to say to us so that we know how to live in a way that pleases Him. So we don't decide what God is worthy of and what He is not worthy of. There's nothing in the Old Testament. There's, excuse me. This, this is not anything new in the Old Testament as well as the new. And so here we're seeing one of Israel's lessons on this very subject. There's a couple other ones, too, and we're not going to get done today, so we might as well turn to them. I want us to do that. First of all, in Psalm 50, a couple other times where this lesson is taught. Psalm 50, let's just read, starting in verse 8. Psalm 50, verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Well, he could rebuke them for those because they they lived under a covenant where they had to do that. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to the Lord a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. you uh, will stop there. But you see, here he says, "Look, when you make these sacrifices, when, you, when you're worshiping me, praising me, I don't need any of this. You know, I, you know, you're not. That's the sacrifice I really want." Is in your heart is your life. I want these sacrifices to reflect what's going on in your heart. That's what we're getting at. And uh, Isaiah chapter fifty-eight. And Isaiah, uh, there's, there's several passages I think in Isaiah where this is brought out, but this is one of the good ones. Let's just read this chapter. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgment, they delight to draw near to me. And I think the idea here is that they are... Keeping the law outwardly, they're, they're approaching me with sacrifices, they're doing, they're saying their prayers and so forth. Verse 3, why have we fasted and you see not? See, that's, what they're doing is we have, we're, we've practiced our fast, we have done our, uh, religious duty and it doesn't seem to be getting any, we're not, we're not getting anywhere with you. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've taken no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. Here's the Lord's answer. You oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit the wicked with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. In such the fast that I, in such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and answers under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable for the Lord? No, it says if it's just outward, that's not what I want. Verse six is not this the fast that I choose to leave the bonds of the wickedness, and to undo the straps of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free, and break every yoke. You know we can read on, but he says, you know, I'm looking for a heart that loves me, that that is affected by me, so that it, you live a life that that expresses what has happened to you, the grace that I have shown to you. I don't need you to bring a sacrifice, some act of worship, you know, you know, at church, you know, if we kind of put it in our own day, if, unless it's a reflection of your heart, and, and what's going on here is that Israel was doing these things because that's kind of their culture. They were raised in these traditions to offer sacrifices. Well, the problem is, they didn't love the Lord. And so the Lord had no, uh, he didn't care anything about it. And so that's what uh, Saul, Samuel is getting up here. Has the Lord, verse 22, as great delight in burnt offerings of sacrifice, as and just obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better the sacrifice than sacrifice unless it was the fat or It doesn't mean that you should make sacrifices. But if you're not obeying, you've missed the point. Um so verse twenty three Make sure I don't um someone well said so first of all he's made he's he's asked a question that he just read, then he makes an assertion and someone said in light of this assertion the assertion is Behold to obey is better than the sacrifice to listen than the bat of Ram, so that's kind of a hard issue. Someone well said, "In sacrifices, a man offers only the strange flesh of irrational animal. And so, at the heart of that—in other words—there's got to be something more than bringing an animal sacrifice. Because, at the end of the day, what are you doing? As we read in Psalm, God doesn't need that; He's not going to eat it. You know, he, he, he owns it to start with, right? Whereas, in obedience, He offers His own will, which is rational or spiritual worship. I think it's the heart of what is, what's going on here. When I offer spiritual sacrifices, when I give of myself, now I've given something rational, something real. I've given my heart, not just some uh, animal, as it were. <clears throat> so Saul saw God as someone to be pacified. So basically he would leave him alone so Saul could get on with his life. But spiritual worship, true worship, sees God as the sum total of life. And so I think this explains the assertion here mm-hmm. in 22b that God wants our love, not because He needs it, but because that's He deserves it, right? Well, better stop there. I, I got about halfway through this. I was kind of afraid of that. But we'll finish it up next week. Any questions or anything? We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for your love to us this day. and Lord, we thank you that even... In difficult passages, and like, we really even didn't get to one of the most difficult parts of this with the, the idea of God regretting, relenting, being sorry for something, that, uh, there are, there are great lessons to be learned here if we will just stop and, uh, think through the whole Bible, put the whole Bible together. And Lord it reminds us you are a God that is worthy to be worshipped. You are a God who is above us. You are you are a multi dimensional God. You're not simple, you're not simplistic. Certainly not as we are. So it's good sometimes that we don't understand you fully because you are an infinite God and you shouldn't be surprised by that. So we pray that you just give us uh, hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen.